If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Galatians chapter 1. The book of Galatians is a letter which followed the pattern of that day of what we call a letter of rebuke. You know, if some kid hadn't written home for a while, uh, his parent would say, you know, I am, I'm amazed, I'm astonished, I'm not happy that you have not written me in some time. Paul writes to the Galatians, and we think this is probably the first letter, the earliest epistle of his. He writes to the Galatians, um, not because they have left the faith, and not because they have embraced heresy, okay, but because they are turning, and that's important, they haven't turned, but they are turning away from the relationship with Jesus Christ. So he writes them this letter. I mentioned this last week. A rebuke isn't always negative. We shouldn't always see it as bad, you know, like you're being scolded. In Proverbs, we read, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So Paul is writing to them to rebuke them, but he loves them. This is personal. This is relational. And if you see that, if you see what Paul is doing in this letter, I think it opens up the rest of his writings. Um, otherwise, people tend to see Paul as a theologian, as writing in abstract theoretical concepts. But instead, what we see in Galatians is he does what God has done throughout Scripture, is he tells stories to illustrate the reality of what it is that God wants. So to get them back on track, Paul tells them, his story. And the key to understanding his story is his encounter with Jesus Christ. He starts out by saying that the message that he preached, the gospel that he preached, was not manufactured by humans, and he did not receive it from any humans. Okay, He was not taught it by any man. Instead, he received it as a revelation from Jesus Christ. In verses 13 through 17, Um, Paul paints this in chapter 1 three pictures of his story what he was like before his conversion his conversion and then after his conversion that God called him and commissioned him there's a striking contrast we saw last week between him before his conversion as he describes it and then after his conversion before his conversion um, it's all I, I, I there are four first person Verbs. I persecuted the church of God. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism. I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. His way of life was all about him. But then he is converted. We see that God set him apart from birth. He called Paul by his grace. And God was pleased to reveal his son in him. As we saw last week, that God's choice precedes our conversion. God's choice leads to God calling us. God's call leads to revelation. He reveals himself, and he did to Paul, and the revelation leads to a commission, and Paul is commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. For Paul, this isn't all theoretic. This isn't theoretical at all. This is what happened to him. This is his story. 
Paul tells us then what happens after his conversion. He said, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. The Arabia thing tends to throw us because we think in modern terms. We will see when we get to chapter 4 that Paul locates Mount Sinai in Arabia. So Arabia constituted a much larger area than what we normally think of. We don't know what happened there, but he was there, it seems like, for three years. Um, Some have argued that, in fact, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, taught him and revealed himself. And so uh, what we read before communion, you know, what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you. But what Paul's talking about is the Last Supper, and he wasn't there, and he wasn't taught it by any person. So it would seem that the Lord Jesus himself revealed this to Paul. So he goes from Sinai to Damascus, and then on, uh, after three years, well, on his way to Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem. If you look at verse number 18 of Galatians 1, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Um, by the way, this last statement in verse number 20, that is sort of a legal thing in the Roman court, you know, that you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What we have here is him saying, I assure you before God, what I'm writing you is no lie. Then verse 21, later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. All of this to say that Paul's story is he was not under the supervision of Peter or any of the other apostles in Jerusalem. He was at Sinai, we think, for three years, and then on the way back he passes through Jerusalem for 15 days. Then he goes to Syria on his way to Cilicia. Cilicia is his home province. It's southern Turkey. Uh, Tarsus is in Cilicia. Okay? And... uh, in, in Judea, around Jerusalem, people don't know Saul, except if you look at verse number 23, they only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. Then chapter 2, the first verse, now we have his second uh, visit to Jerusalem. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. Um, Just a side note, something we talked about last week. This is not the way we would do things. Uh, Paul is converted, um, and he begins to preach right away in Damascus, if you look at Acts, and he people are going to kill him. They have to let him in a basket, let him outside the walls. And then he goes to Sinai, and he's there for three years. Goes through Jerusalem 15 days, goes to Syria and Cilicia 14 years. So it seems like for 17 years from the time of his conversion to the time when Paul comes back to Jerusalem, at this point he's been in Antioch, Syria for about a year. So let's say 16 years. 16 years from his conversion 
to when he goes back to Jerusalem and talks to the apostles. He's been preaching for about a year. It's like, wait, wait a minute. This is someone who is dramatically confronted by God on the road to Damascus. This is someone that Jesus, we think, taught him personally for three years in the wilderness at Sinai. Get this guy on stage. I mean, get him in front of the people. And yet we have this period of time that takes place. I think it was a period of time for Paul to mature, but for us that seems quite inefficient. I mean, if, if we have a famous person who becomes a Christian, uh, we want them to do a podcast, we want them to be interviewed, we want them in front of the people. And this is not the way God did things, at least with Paul. And I think there's something we can learn from that. We need to recognize that God's timing is oftentimes quite different from ours. Verse number two, I went up to Jerusalem in response, or I went in response to a revelation. And this goes back to the book of Acts. There was a prophet named Agabus who said there was going to be a great famine. And in fact, there was a famine. And Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem with money to help the poor in Jerusalem. Um, so he went with Barnabas and, and Titus. Now, while he was in Jerusalem, Paul sets before him the gospel that he had been preaching among the Gentiles. So, humanly speaking, he didn't go up to Jerusalem to get approval. Like, I'm going up to meet Peter and these guys, and I'm going to make my case, and then they can say, thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, He goes for an entirely different reason. He goes because Agabus says there's a famine, which means that the people in Jerusalem are going to be hard up, and the church in Antioch had taken up a collection, and Paul and Barnabas and Titus are taking that money to Jerusalem. Okay. So let's look at verse 2 again. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. This is really interesting because it is argued, and I would agree, that the people that he's writing against, the, the Judaizers who have come into Galatia and are confusing the people, they don't know about this meeting. They don't know about this private meeting in which the apostles, in fact, said, yeah, you're doing the right thing. Continue what you're doing, okay? Paul wants to make clear that he tells the apostles what he is preaching, not for their approval, okay? Because in a sense, it's kind of late for that. Either they approve of it or they don't, Uh, but this is what he's been doing. It's a private meeting, and that's really important. Okay, now we begin our passage today, which is verse number three. Verses three, four, and five are quite difficult because they seem out of place. It, it doesn't go with the flow of the passage. He seems to go off tangent by talking about Titus. Look, if you would, at verse three. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Uh, 
We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. So Paul and Barnabas have this money. They're going to Jerusalem and they take Titus with him. Who is Titus? He is not mentioned in the book of Acts. And Luke is the one who was the historian. He's not mentioned there. He's mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians that he is going to go to Corinth. There is the book that Paul wrote to him, what we call the epistle to Titus. We are actually told more about Titus in these verses than we are in the rest of the New Testament. Okay? He is a Christian. Obviously, he's a brother. He is a Greek. And he was not circumcised. We're not sure why he went with Paul and Barnabas, but perhaps it was as sort of an exhibit, exhibit A, here is a person who is a believer in Jesus the Messiah, who is a Greek, he's not Jewish, and he has not followed the Jewish law. He has not been circumcised. And now we come to sort of the key issue in the book of Galatians. This is why it seems that Paul's gone off on a tangent. It is the issue of circumcision. These brothers have said to the Gentile believers, oh, we, we, brothers, we're grateful you believe in Jesus the Messiah. Yeah, but you lack one thing. You need to be circumcised because you're not really a Christian uh, unless you have been. Well, years earlier, Paul had taken Titus to Jerusalem and some people questioned it but in a sense it was it became a non-issue it's like Paul and Barnabas withstood the people like yeah that's not going to happen Titus is not going to be circumcised he is our brother in Christ period it is interesting how Paul puts it uh, in verse 4 some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves in other words When one puts one's faith in Christ, one is freed. And these brothers are now trying to put burdens on these people and say, no, 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 yeah, you have to do other stuff as well. There's a certain irony here, by the way, because a false brother is no brother at all. Uh, The Greeks didn't have uh, punctuation. If Paul were writing this today, he might put brother in quotation marks rather than saying false brother. But there are some who claim to be followers of Jesus, claim to be brothers, who in fact have not embraced the gospel. Instead, they are holding on to aspects of the law. In order to disrupt the church, they have infiltrated, they claim to be part of the church of God, to spy out the freedom. The freedom that we have in Christ will be spelled out in chapters 3 and 4, brilliantly, I might add where Paul speaks of the freedom we have in Christ. Uh, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Paul will write to the Galatians. In verse number five, Paul is not giving an inch. Look at verse five. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. It's really important that Paul did this because Paul was a Jew. It'd be different if Paul was a Gentile and then he is standing up to Jewish believers. He himself is a Jew. And he believes that the gospel is about Jesus, the Messiah. You put your faith in him, period. 
Now, in verses 6 through 10, Paul gets back to the subject at hand. He sort of digressed to talk about Titus for a minute. In verses 6 through 10, he talks about the second visit. And one gets a sense that he's walking a tightrope here. Look at verses 6. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In verse 6, it seems that Paul gets dangerously close to disrespecting the apostles. And in fact, if we're not careful, we might think that he's still talking about the false uh, brothers, but he's not. But remember, Paul is trying to make the case. People are like, these false brothers who've come into Galatia, it's like, you know what Paul taught? He's not really an apostle. He's not a capital A apostle. And what he taught you, it's kind of good, but he left out something really, really important. And Paul's like, listen, the gospel I got, I got from Christ. I got it from Jesus Christ. I didn't get it from any human being. I didn't get it from Peter or any of the apostles. Okay? And that's why Paul can say, Listen, if an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be accursed. If an apostle teaches another gospel, let him be accursed. So his message did not come from the apostles. He received it from God. And the apostles, the leadership saw that, in fact, Paul had been given the grace of God to preach. He had been commissioned to preach to the Gentiles, while they, in fact, themselves were preaching to the Jews. Um... Peter is seen as the leading apostle in preaching to the Jews. Though it is worth noting, and if you know the New Testament, Peter was the first apostle to actually preach to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, when he went to the house of Cornelius, do you remember the story? Before he goes, he has this vision that this comes down and unclean animals are there, and God says, kill and eat. And he's like, listen, I only do kosher, okay? I don't, I don't, I don't, break the dietary laws and God is very clear to him that he should not in fact call unclean what God has created and then a messenger comes from Cornelius who is a Roman centurion so Peter is the first to preach to the Gentiles by the way when he gets back home to uh, Jerusalem he's sort of on the hot seat because people are like uh, why did you do that the gospel's for us it's not for those guys and Peter makes the case that, in fact, it is for all people. So Peter did, in fact, preach to the Gentiles. And whenever Paul, on his missionary journeys, went into a town, he first went to the synagogue. That's where the Jews are. So it isn't an exclusive, I only speak to Jews or I only speak to Gentiles. But their primary focus, Peter was to the Jews and Paul was to the Gentiles. So what's the point? Why, why all this? They're preaching the same gospel. It isn't as though preachers, 
Peter's preaching a Jewish gospel and Paul is preaching a Gentile gospel. Uh, you know, that Paul says, hey, you don't have to keep the law. And Peter's saying, yes, you do. Okay? They preach the same good news. And the people who receive the truth become a part of the family of God, whether they are Jewish or they are Gentile. The issue here is not primarily one of theology, okay? Even though theology is important. It is the personal, it is the relational, it is the fact that we become the children of God. Whether you are Jewish or you are Gentile. In verse number nine, Paul again seems to walk the tightrope. He speaks of those reputed to be pillars. Um, and one is reminded of the temple, the pillars that are there. The church is now the temple of God. And the pillars that he mentions are James, the half-brother of Jesus, Peter, and John. And they gave to Barnabas and to Paul the right hand of fellowship. That is, they recognize God's grace in their lives. And they agreed, you should preach to the Gentiles. Okay. We are preaching the same gospel. You preach it to the Gentiles and we preach it to the Jews. One last thing. This is in verse number 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The reason they are in Jerusalem is because of the poor. The offerings that have been collected in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas bring it down. You know, they didn't have zeal. You know, they had to carry it physically down, and they do that. Um, a side note, a digression, if you wish. When you read Paul's letters and he talks about giving, this is the giving he's talking about. He's talking about collecting money for the poor who are in Jerusalem. And why are there poor people in Jerusalem? We've talked about this. When Stephen is martyred, the church scatters. Persecution broke out and the church scatters. But the people who leave are the people who have the money to leave. The people who don't have the money to leave, they're stuck in Jerusalem. They are the poor. And so Paul will say to the Romans, he will say to the Corinthians. Um, and by the way, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, it talks about collection. It's for the poor. It's not for the church. I, mean, I don't know how many sermons I've heard on mission giving or giving to church based on those passages. No, it's giving to those who are in need for the poor in Jerusalem. So Paul tells us his story. His second visit to Jerusalem was not for the purpose um, that somehow he would be okayed, if you wish. They did, in fact, give him the right hand of fellowship. He had already been preaching the gospel, and he had been preaching it to the Gentiles. He is now accepted by the leadership of the church. But he didn't get his apostleship from them. They didn't say... Okay, Paul, you are now a capital A apostle. Um, what they did was they had a meeting privately, and they came to the conclusion that what he was preaching to the Gentiles is what they were preaching to the Jews. So everything's fine, right? Not exactly. Um, in the passage that follows, Paul just jumps right in. There's no segue, there's no transition to sort of ease into it. 
Um, Paul talks about another incident, and I'm convinced that the Galatians already knew about this. It's something that these false brothers have been telling. Oh, did you know that Paul actually scolded Peter? That Peter is like the head of the church and Paul was so obnoxious as to scold him? Uh, Paul explains exactly what happened. Look, if you would, at verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, it's like no background, no context. It's just Peter goes to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you, are, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Among the customs of the ancient world that we probably find, well, I don't know that we necessarily understand it, we find it hard to relate to, is the question of who you eat with. Um, in Christian terms, it's called table fellowship. In ancient times, whoever you ate with was someone you associated with. It was a sign of solidarity. Um, you know, when we eat out, we have no idea who's at the next table, the tables around us, and it, frankly, we don't care. You know, we're, we're there to eat our meal. Um, oftentimes, we have no say in, in that. Um, the Europeans do this more than we do in this country, where instead of having individual tables, you just have one long table and everyone just sits down. And so you may be sitting next to a total stranger, and that's okay. Not so in the ancient world. Who you ate with was a sign of who you were. One of the accusations brought against Jesus was he eats with sinners, okay? And we're like, what's the big deal? We eat with sinners all the time. What's, what's the problem? Well, because it was, in fact, saying, I'm buddy-buddy I'm with this person that I'm eating with. There is one New Testament scholar who has gone so far as to say the reason Jesus was crucified was because he ate with the wrong people. And this so offended the Jewish hierarchy. They're like, this guy's got to go. He's breaking this, this social norm. You have to eat with the right people. So Peter goes to Antioch, and he goes there, and he's sitting down, table fellowship, and he's eating with Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, he may have been eating unclean food, if you wish, non-kosher food. Okay. These are my brothers. I'm eating with them. I'm, I'm showing that I'm in solidarity with them. And then some people come up from Jerusalem who are Jewish, and Peter withdraws. He, does, he won't eat with the Gentiles anymore because he's afraid of offending these people. Um, 
from 1 Corinthians 11, by the way, the passage we read when we have communion, we have an indication that in the early church, communion was part of a larger meal. So either before the meal, during the meal, or after the meal, what we call the Lord's Supper would take place, but otherwise you have this big meal, table fellowship, people would eat together. And can you imagine what the Gentiles felt like when Peter's like, yeah, I can't do communion with you guys. I can't have a meal with you guys. I'm going to hang out with the Jews over here. Um, And Paul calls him out publicly. Paul scolds him for what he's doing. Why does he tell this story? I think the Galatians already know this story. He's giving his version of the story where people are like, oh, you know, that Paul, he's not even a real apostle. And he had the temerity to, in fact, scold the real apostle, that is the apostle Peter. And Paul will have none of it. There's one Peter, but he's acting in two ways. We call that hypocrisy, being two-faced, okay? Before the Jews come up from Jerusalem, he's eating with the Gentiles. The Jews come up, he won't eat with the Gentiles. Um, By the way, if you look at um, the verse, uh, in the NIV, we have a quotation here where Paul begins to speak to Peter, and it's in quotation marks. And at the end of the quote is at the end of verse number 21. Other translations only have that one verse, but no, this whole thing is... Paul basically preaching to Peter that what he is doing is wrong. Um, Verse 14, this is what I meant, verse 14, quotation, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sins? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. We won't look at all these verses today. Um, From verse 17 on, we will look at the Lord willing next week. But what is Paul saying here? Well, there are two parts to his rebuke of Peter. First of all, what Peter knows, and second of all, what Paul knows based on his experience. First of all, Peter's acting like a Gentile until these guys show up from Jerusalem. And how is he acting like a Gentile? Consider the possibilities. That he's turned his back on circumcision? No, not likely. Uh, That he was eating pork, perhaps, and other unclean animals? It's a possibility. Um, Was he disobeying the Mosaic laws? Unlikely. Um, Was Peter no longer praying. No, that's, that's not it either. 
Peter was saying by his actions that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile by eating with the Gentiles. And here we have it. To reinforce this, we see this back in Acts chapter 10. When Peter first went to Cornelius, the first apostle to go to the Gentiles, uh, talking with him, Cornelius, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are all well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. So the fact that Peter goes into a Gentile's house, that's, that's already breaking traditions. Okay. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So by eating with the Gentile believers, actually being with the Gentile believers in Antioch, Peter was not living like a Jew. Because a good Jew would not do that. Yeah, you're not going to do that. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? And it's all based on the question, who is my neighbor? And at the end of the story, uh, Jesus asked the lawyer, who is the neighbor? And the lawyer will not even say the Samaritan. It's like the one who showed mercy. I mean, that's how isolated the Jews were from everybody else. And now Peter is in Antioch with Gentile believers, eating with them, having the Lord's Supper with them. Um, yeah, he's not, he's not living like a traditional Jew. He's living like a Gentile. One writer put it this way, something has happened to Peter. Something, something so profound that he now has a new identity, which affects key behavior patterns and taboos about that very central human activity, sitting down to a meal. Peter has dramatically changed. Um, But by doing this, he is forcing, and I could put that in quotation marks, the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. And why is that? Well, if Peter won't eat with you, he'll only eat with the Jews, then you must be doing something wrong or there is something lacking in you, and therefore you need to change. He is, by his example, forcing them to change. Both Paul and Peter are Jews. It might seem like a non-issue, but it's critical to this passage. Paul has the same standing as Peter. They're both Jews. Okay? And in fact, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had studied under Gamaliel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, no one can say he's a Gentile. He's absolutely a Jew. Um, neither one of them are Gentiles. Gentile sinners. Um, the term that Paul uses is that of those who are outside the law. The Jews are inside the law. They have Torah. They keep the law. Those who are outside are the sinners, those sinners out there. Um, Paul and Peter are the same. Okay? So it's not like Peter's up here and Paul's down here. Uh, they are both Jews. And Peter knows really well, if anybody should, 
that a person is not made right with God by keeping the law, by observing the law. That's not how you are made right with God. Um, And now we get into the territory that one might say is theological as opposed to a narrative. Um, From other passages we have from Paul, being justified means giving the status of being right or being in the right. I would point out two things. This is the earliest letter, so there's no, oh, by the way, in Romans I wrote this, you know, or in Ephesians I wrote that. This is the first letter. But there's something else. Paul's not in a courtroom, is he? The picture that he envisions is not a courtroom. He's at the dinner table. He's having a meal. And he scolds Peter publicly because of his hypocrisy. You're Jewish But as a Jewish Christian, you should not be separating from people simply because of their ethnicity. Peter is in the wrong. He has separated himself from brothers and sisters simply because the people came up from Jerusalem. By the way, this almost seems to be a pattern in Peter's life. Remember when he denied that he knew Jesus? It's because of a young maiden. Now the Jews come up from Jerusalem, and he again, he's afraid. And so he does. He acts quite hypocritically. It's not about being Jewish. It's about putting your faith in Jesus, the Messiah. God has one family. He doesn't have two families. Okay? He doesn't have the Gentile family and the Jewish family. He has one family. By the way, there is a rabbi, I don't know if he's still alive, but in the 20th century, who said, yes, um, Jesus was the Messiah. Great. Has he converted? No, he's like, no, he's the Gentile Messiah. Okay. And as believers, we would say, no. There's one family, there's one Messiah. Jesus came to save his people. Paul says to Peter, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Peter, how do we become the children of God? It's by putting our faith in Christ. How did these Gentiles become believers? By putting their faith in Christ. Why are you making a distinction between the two? Believing in Jesus as the Messiah is what it means to become a Christian. But these false brothers are saying, yes, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but you need to be circumcised. We believe Jesus will save you from your sins, but you need to be circumcised. And when they say, but you need to, then what they're saying is, no, Jesus is not the Savior. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is our Savior. And it is through him that we are saved from our sins. It's sort of an awkward place to stop, but I've gone on for a while. We'll pick this up next week. Um, But just in closing, first of all, Paul doesn't say to Peter, 
I have special revelation. I'm correcting you because I know more than you do. Uh, no, it's, that's not what he says. He doesn't say to Peter, hey, I spent three years at Sinai and Jesus personally taught me. And so I know what's what. I know better than you. No. The issue is Peter knows what's right and he's acting in the wrong way. He's being a hypocrite. He knows what's right, but he's not acting in line with that. Okay. The second thing I would tell you as we close is that Paul writes this letter because he's opposed to another gospel. And that's what's being brought in, another gospel. Oh, we have the good news about Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah. And you need to believe in him. And you need to get circumcised. Well, if he is the Messiah, and if he is our Savior, either you believe in him, and that's that, or you don't believe in him. Because you say, he is the Savior, but you need to do this. The gospel is God's gift to us. It is his good news. It is not something that we add to. Uh, the hymn we sang earlier today, Rock of Ages, and one of the verses says, In my hands, no, you know, nothing I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We come with empty hands. And we come to Christ and say, By your grace, I believe in you. So it's either Jesus is the Savior or he's not. And when you say Jesus plus something, then he's not the Savior anymore. He's a good guy. He's a good teacher. He did amazing things. But he, yeah, either he's the Savior or he's not. And then the third and last thing I would say, and I would remind you, this comes from the second verse of the book. Paul does not stand alone. He writes this letter, all the brothers with me. Um, somehow we have this vision of Paul as someone who was like the superstar and whatever he said went and he was just sort of he was a leader no question he was an apostle capital a but what paul preaches is the gospel it is the truth and those who are with him affirm that in fact it is the truth if paul was the only one who believed this stuff if you wish then we might have some serious problems but paul is a part of the family of god Peter is too. He's just forgotten what that means. That we have brothers and sisters who are very, very different from us, who have different customs, who eat different food than we do, who might dress differently, who, you know, they just have different music, all these different things, but they're still the people of God. And don't separate yourself simply because you're afraid of other, what other people might think. Anyway, we will pick this up, the Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is part of being fallen human beings that we want to add to what you have done. Somehow we think in our wisdom, we, we know better. And we are grateful for your Son, and that he died for us and all that. And yet this sneaking feeling comes in that we 
could add something to make it better, to make you love us more, to make us more worthy. We are unworthy. You love us freely, without condition, and you sent your Son for us. And by your grace, by your Spirit, you called us to be your children. And you have children all over this planet and throughout human history. In many ways, we are not anything alike, culturally, ethnically, educationally, economically, but we are one in Christ. And by your grace, we should not be like Peter. We should, in fact, affirm our oneness in Christ. Forgive us when we presume to know more than you, to add to what you have graciously given to us. May we once again see the wonder and the reality that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. Thank you for bringing us together on this Sunday, this last Sunday of January. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. And may we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.